just out of curiosity, you have this like old building that you said feels like a kiln. Where do you store these records? Uh, we store them in the basement, which which is any records manager uh, will tell you is probably the worst place to store them. But that's where everybody stores their records. Yes. All right. Good to know. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta. Each episode, I'm going to find people with questions about local history, and then we're going to find out the answers together. This is the third episode, and thank you so much for all your questions and letters and shares since I released the first two. I feel like I fell into the land of Og. I had no idea how many of you out there were interested in Beaver Hill Lake. Anyway, on to this episode story of the shepherd house a story that gave us a surprising look at booze behind the scenes machinations around prohibition and what your dining room says about you it starts at 9945 86th avenue the shepherd house one of the fanciest houses in old strathcona though you might not notice it from the street with the big trees out in front built right on the razor's edge of edmonton strathcona becoming a single city Hello. <laughs> My name is Christy Bolter, and I am a local green realtor, have an interest in uh, sustainability and uh, preservation of all things human. <laughs> and along the journey, I came across this amazing 4,000 square feet, three-story, 100-year-old plus house in Strathcona, and got me on to a bit of a journey as I went down uh, the road of discovery uh, and uh, along the way um, found myself moving into this amazing building and uh, wanting to carry on the legacy that had began by the individual before me of uh, a collective experience within this large seven-bedroom home uh, and uh, a, you know, a cooperative living style if you will uh, as we have discovered then we have um, some limitations based on uh, current situa- zoning situations and because the people living here aren't related. It's a, it's, a, it's a gigantic house. It was built for a pretty, like a, a moderately wealthy family because... Um, three kids. It's three kids, not very big. Um, but it is way bigger than most yes. like current families would live in. And the shepherds um, uh, who lived here, um, uh, named after William Shepherd, who was one of the mayors of Strathcona. Yeah, that they they had a lot of needs that modern families don't have. So, so yeah, from what I've seen, like you have um, lots of people living here and doing creative things in this space. Um, like there's like a massage business downstairs, and um, and you've kind of like reached the outer limits of Our what's al- yeah, for, that's what we're allowed. And so we we wanted up. Great, uh, and basically going to a commercial zoning, and in principle they're in agreement with us. We are just building our our case so that it is that much easier for them to agree. And we understand from them they are working right now to write a bylaw, particularly for this house because of its unique nature. This is yeah. So like the the commercial regulations demand that there be parking in a certain way but we maxed out now is that we have just enough for what we have now so we've we're keeping it really contained and we're just uh, testing things out and incubating things and 
reaching out to community and say, how can we be more beneficial? I am talking with the Abundant Community Collective and I'm hoping that in time I can, if not be the representative of the Strathcona um, Abundant Community, I can be one of the liaison to, I would like to uh, um, create this house to emerge as a community sustainability concierge and uh, have a, a meeting and greeting opportunity to get people connected and send them in the right direction when they're asking their sustainability questions. I've never heard uh, the term sustainability concierge, but I think that's a good sign. I think I made it up. <laughs> I always wanted to be a concierge, and I discovered that. I was like, what do you always want to be, right? When I was talking about, what do you always want to be? Uh, and, and I've always been interested in sustainability. And I think because I like, to, I like to help people get what they want, and that's what a concierge does. And so when I put the two together and say, sustainability concierge, what does that mean? Well, sustainability is multifaceted, depends on the question that you bring to the table. In this moment, we're talking about the sustainability of a hundred year old house that is too large for one normal family of today to live in. So it's not in on the common market. They don't want it. You've got a lot of stories. You want to confirm some of them. Yes. And part of the reason why that's important is because for you to get all this stuff happening with it being designated as municipal historic resource, getting the bylaws so you can do the things you need to do with the house, you need to know the story of the house. Yes, absolutely. So I'm excited to learn this further story and hopefully we'll uh, get some uh, funny uh, antidotes to add to the story as we go along. <laughs> well, let's find out. Preserving an old house is hard work. I was happy to help hook Christy up with a couple ways to learn the story of her house. First off, we set up an early morning appointment at Old St. Stephen's College on the University of Alberta campus. We started there because this house is actually already in the Alberta Register of Historic Places. The Alberta Culture and Tourism historians there have some records in the house for when it got added to the list. Ron Kelland invited us into his office. And this is Ron. Hello, Ron. Thank you for meeting with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Welcome. This is Christy, and this is what I'm going to be like all morning long, throwing microphones around. Um, okay, nice. I went through our files and pulled out uh, everything I thought that would be applicable and qualified as, as research. Um, there, there's not really a lot, but to be honest, there's more than there typically is for um, on hand for a site that we designated such a long time ago. Do you mind backing up for the, the listening audience and explaining like who you are and why you guys have these excellent records? Uh, certainly. Um, well, we're the Historic Resources Management Branch of uh, Alberta Culture and Tourism. And one of the things we do, amongst uh, many other things, is that uh, the program I work in, uh, we do research on and designate uh, historic buildings and places. Um, the designation program uh, means that those are legally protected so that the um, alterations and, and demolitions and that can't happen to those buildings without the uh, permission of the Minister of Culture and Tourism. Um, the designation program also uh, allows people to access grants through the Alberta Historical Resources Foundation for maintenance and conservation of uh, protected places. So the Shepherd House um, was listed as a provincial historic resource back in the 80s, you said? Uh, uh, yes, back in the 80s. To be honest, I can't remember if it was 81 or 83, but it was uh, way back, way back then. Christy is nodding. You know what year it was? I'm not sure what year, but I heard in the 80s, so I would say yeah. one or three would, would make sense, yes. Yeah. Um, so um, we were looking for information on the house, and because you need a bunch of info about the house to designate it as a provincial resource, 
you have you have something yeah. for us? Uh, there were there would have been historians working here at the time, and they did research on the house, uh, a lot of newspaper research. You know, they did some land titles searches, that type of thing, and to figure out why it was significant. And this one ends up. They, at the time, determined it was significant for its, uh, for its architecture, this kind of grand Georgian mansion, and also for its association with W.H. Shepard, um, you know, very early Strathcona, Edmonton area businessman and uh, mayor of Strathcona for, uh, for a brief period before the, the city amalgamated with Edmonton. Cool. All right. And that's what I had understood the stories I'd heard was that uh, Mr. Shepard was one of the last mayors of, uh, of Strathcona before it amalgamated. So maybe he had been part of that uh, bridge because I had heard, and I would be curious if we had this information, one of his businesses in his uh, evolution is to grandeur of a mayor was a water taxi before the bridge system. And so he would uh, back and forth between Strathcona and Edmonton anyway, which could have potentially led him to connections that would have helped to bring them together. But that's an assumption. I don't have any history. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, I always knew of uh, John Walter's ferry across the river. I didn't actually know of any other services uh, to get people back and forth well, across. Maybe this, is, this could be something that just, because we've heard a lot of stories. That's why we came to your table, because we've heard a lot of stories about the house, and we were really just curious of how many we can like, qualify. All right. Well, I guess we've got some of the research here. Yes. We can take a look and see what we have. Ron had some neat stuff. Obituaries, old letters, a couple pictures of the house over the years, and a pretty striking picture of William Shepard, or W.H. Shepard, as he was also known. Of course, all the listeners can't see. Um, yeah, when he was a pretty young man, middle-aged man there with, uh, you know, clean-shaven but mustache. Uh, like a walrus a, mustache, too. Yes, like a big... Nietzsche bushy mustache, but... Uh, then in the, some of the obituaries, there's uh, him as a, uh, well, obviously as a, as a much older, older silvered man, yes. So Mr. Shepard, it says here he left Ontario at 15, and he headed west in search of adventure and opportunity, arrived in Strathcona in 1894, and two years later, he purchased the Strathcona Hotel. That, uh, that is, a, that's, a, that's very young. Wow, that didn't happen, like, because that's 15 years, and then he arrived two years, like, he's, like, barely 20. Wow. And he served on town council six times, beginning in 1899, and elected mayor in 1906, added to the hotel twice, and formed the Edmonton Brewing Company. It's, it's kind of, because it says in here that Shepard lived in the residence, which is the address here at Shepherd House, 9945, 86 Ave., uh, in this time frame, however, what I understand is that the house was built in 1912. And this, this is in 18 to 1907, this conversation. So it seems a little bit funny here, but I guess that's part of uh, what we look at for just identifying. Um, yeah, well, one of the things I've, I've really, we, we have a little bit of trouble coming to terms with when right. doing some of this research is, you know, when things were actually built. Right. You know, when do people remember them being built? You know, sometimes going on more than 100 years. And and uh, when newspapers say things may have been built. And uh, it, it can be very, very difficult to sometimes actually nail down a specific year. That's true. Because it might have been misreported. Yes. And and memory is faulty. You know, yeah, people's like, oh, yeah, I remember they, were, they built that house in 1915 or whatever. And it may have been there 
five, ten years before that sometimes. You know, it's... The reason Christy was wondering about this is because it actually really affects the story you tell about the Shepherd family. Did they have this house while he was still Strathcona's mayor and before it amalgamated with Ebenson? Mayors back then served for one year, and he served in 1906. So if he was mayor, you know, he'd be inviting over a very different kind of guest to the house than if he was just a regular citizen. Well, we did find a document that seemed to definitively say the house was built after his time as mayor. It was in a collection of newspaper clippings. So this is from May 28th, 1912, a list of May Building Greater. Right, which I'm guessing Greater City. So May Building in Greater City will exceed $2 million. One of the articles in this package mentioned that W.H. Shepard paid $8,000 to build a house at that address in 1912. So several years after he stepped down as mayor. And by the way, guess who he bought the land from? Alexander Rutherford, Alberta's first premier. There's a little bit of ambiguity in these articles. It's actually not clear whether he paid $8,000 to build the whole house or just to buy the permit. I told Christy if that's what he paid to build the whole thing, eight grand sounded pretty cheap to me. Meanwhile, Ron was quietly converting in the background. Decent shape. Ron, are you sitting at Google looking at an inflation cal- calculator oh, yes. for us? The Bank of Canada has an inflation calculator online. So I'll see eight. Thousand dollars in 1912. I want to go back to 1914. Um, that's still not a lot of money. Uh, today, 172 thousand dollars. Well, hmm. we couldn't build that house today for 172. That's no way. Further down the pile. Ron pulled out some really intriguing letters of William Shepherd's. You see, he built a brewery at a spectacularly bad time. William Shepherd was one of those early Edmontonians who was into vertical integration. You know, he not only ran hotels, he also owned breweries to keep the hotel taverns stocked with beer. Listener Paul Johnson actually wrote in to ask what I could tell him about the building in Rossdale on the 100th Street that kind of looks like an old grain elevator or mill. Well, coincidentally, that was actually one of William Shepherd's breweries. When he built it in 1905, it was the home of his Edmonton Brewery and Malting Company. But in 1912, at the same time that he was making plans to build what became Christie's house, you know, he also decided to expand his business by building a newer brewery in Oliver, which you've probably seen in the, quote, brewery district, unquote, because it's still standing. We just know it as the Molson Brewery because they were the last people to make beer there. Wouldn't you know it, though, just as Shepard's new brewery was coming online, the temperance movement emerged pushing governments around Canada to ban the sale of alcohol. This new brewery in Oliver was running for about a year before Albertan men voted in a plebiscite to make Alberta a dry province. Did you know that that was done by popular vote, by the way? So what Ron was able to show us was this fascinating back and forth in letters between Shepard and a fellow beer baron down in Calgary, Alfred Ernest Cross. I like these letters because they're a rare look into the way that powerful businessmen arm wrestled with governments during the Great War period. First, on October 13, 1915, Shepard writes to Cross saying he's concerned about prohibition coming into effect soon. He wants to know if Cross will support a petition to the Alberta legislator, quote, signed by over 50,000 working men, unquote, to allow hotels to keep their beer licenses. I'm sure Shepard is doing this out of the goodness of his heart. He wants to know if other breweries will help pay for this campaign. He's worried that some of the breweries won't help out because he can't reveal the names of the places that will get the licenses for some reason. Cross writes back from Calgary. 
Dear Sir, Receive your private letter of the 13th. I think the idea of a petition to be presented to the legislature is a good one, but I should say the other breweries would not subscribe anything if they did not know what was done with it. In any case, I do not think we are justified in spending any more just now. Here I'm wondering, what is the power relationship? Is Cross gently letting down an overly enthusiastic junior brewer? Instead, Cross suggests pressing Edmonton City Council to agree that in principle, brewers should be compensated for their coming losses from prohibition, and press the Board of Trade to do the same. Cross thinks this would put them in a good position to make demands from the provincial government. But by December, as prohibition is getting closer to reality, Shepard writes from Edmonton, Dear Sir, since speaking with you over the phone, I have interviewed some of the aldermen and some of the candidates re a resolution of council in favor of compensation for the people likely to be injured by the passing of a new liquor act. And while a few would favor it, I'm afraid it will be difficult to get a strong vote in favor. Meanwhile, other brewers are panicking and slashing their prices, undercutting both these guys. Cross writes back, uh, Dear Sir, received yours of 11th and regret to hear that nothing can be done with either the City Council or the Board of Trade in Edmonton. And I'm afraid we are very much in the same position here. Under the circumstances, it would be very little use circulating a petition in favor of granting compensation to those injured by the recent prohibition legislation. I hope to go to Edmonton someday and talk the matter over with you and see if anything can be done. So that is so interesting to see the power that they had and the limits to it. Also that their two companies were kind of colluding on beer prices. Anyway, Shepard made it through Prohibition okay. Eight years later it was removed, again by a plebiscite. But according to the province's documents, he kept making beer and saying it was for export. And then, supposedly, it was, quote, marketed locally and delivered night and day by motorcycle with a sidecar, unquote. Is that what the drink the sidecar is named after, by the way? All told, I think we found some pretty cool stories at the archives. So, Christy, what what are you still wondering about that we might be able to find in some of these old documents? What, what questions do you still have about W.H. Shepard in the house? Well, it looks like we have answered most of them, like, I mean, qua- qualified most of them. I was curious about the water taxi, which it doesn't sound like, but it sounds like you had had a different name, so that could have been just a, a rumor, which, of course, I was mostly just wanting to make sure when I'm telling stories to people coming through the house, then I have my story as straight as possible, because it's like, I had this idea that, because, of course, there's now a sunroom built on the back of it, and that happened, at, uh, it's not part of the historic designation. However, there is a little uh, mezzanine, if you will, uh, which we use as a DJ booth and in the past it had been used as a reading nook and I was surmising because it had been the back area of the house at one point and it was a door-like uh, area and the, the back door is obvious and there is the interior stairs that go all the way up to where the help would have lived and so in my surmisation if they were doing laundry services I was surmising that the laundry line would have gone out on a turret out at the back but I was told I was probably wrong. I made that up. So that's the only thing I want to know is, is there a laundry line? No, I'm joking. That's, that's one of the only stories that I still tell that is, I won't tell the water taxi story anymore because obviously that one is sketchy. So we don't know. We can't prove it. I noticed we don't see any records here about his wife. Was that, um, were, were you just pulling up stuff about William Shepard specifically or is there not really stuff. Oh, I, I was just pulling stuff we had associated with the Shepherd House research that had been done. So, 
yes, not very much about his wife and family. Um, that that's sadly not really surprising. I think that's all. Thank you so much. I'm I'm excited. Okay, thanks a lot. Luckily for Christy, I found someone that might have some insights into her clothesline question, and more than that, what we could learn about the Shepherd family from the physical house. We took a break, then headed over to the house, and that's where we met up with Joanne Yakula. Do you guys know each other? Have you met before? Uh, Well, my name is uh, Joanne Yakula, and I own a company called From Times Pass, and I I wear a lot of different hats. I deal with antiques, um, so I'm very passionate about the interior furnishings, uh, but I also specialize in heritage homes, and I'm author of a book on uh, historical Alberta interiors. The book is called? Historical Interiors of Alberta, A Guide to Restoring and Decorating Your Heritage Home. Wonderful. That's a really good resource for everybody. Oh, so good. So we've invited Joanne, yeah, because she has experience with houses with this particular era to kind of tell us what it is. Especially interiors, yeah. At this point, I've got to say, it was kind of funny watching Joanne and Christy together sometimes. They have a lot of common fascinations about old houses, but they come at it from such different angles. Like when we walked through the kitchen and Joanne noticed a coin embedded in the floor. The floor is all pegged. So I think the floor was probably, uh, I like that, the toonie in the, in the hole. I think the abundance. whole floor, it's a what? A sign of abundance. Oh. Um, I, uh, I, I, I think this was The Shepherd House feels somewhere between pink. grand and warmly inviting, and it definitely feels lived in. The current residents have turned the old den into a healing sanctuary, and when we visited, it was set up for a massage. One of Christie's first questions was what Joanne thought of a strangely warm detail in the big front foyer coming into the house. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so now we're, we're in the, the back into the lobby and we're looking at this magnificent fireplace, uh, which um, I'm, I'm curious what you, what you would maybe say for why they would have, why at that time, this is my question, why at that time would they have put this magnificent fireplace in a center lobby rather than turn it around, maybe have it in there, or even have it in the den? Instead, it's, I mean, I had these ideas, but it's, it's right in the lobby. It's not even in the upper floor. We thought maybe there could have been, before renovations, a fireplace on where the master bedroom would have been, but we're not sure because it's been suggested that was just a fantasy. So I'm just curious if you had anything to say. I just want to add for the listening audience what context for it. Like this opening lobby thing is right beside the parlor where people would have received guests, probably. Right. So it does seem weird that there's this kind of fireplace well, where you wouldn't think that people would hang out. Right there. So a cold winter when you're using the fire, you open the front door and all of the heat rushes out. I would just think that's why I went to geez. The fireplace currently is not operable, has not been operable in the time that I've known of this building. So it's not, it's a nice decorative piece, it's fine. How, however, in a, when it was being used, it's, it's curious that it would have been located here rather than, say, in the den over there, or even on the other side of this wall for a public, more public consumption. You could warm your toasties instead of, you know, being over there in the fire heat mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. be there. What do you know about the furnace for this house? It's a boiler now, but in the original, when the fireplace would have been used more classically, it would have been coal operated from okay. the bottom. So that's part of your answer right there. Okay. Okay. Um, because fireplaces, what happened is during the Victorian era, because of the fact that there were no, no, um, Boilers. Boilers or, you know, coal 
furnaces or anything like that. All of the heating took place in individual rooms, so that's why you needed to have individual fireplaces. And so what happened by 1912, the age of this house, uh, what you're seeing is, is um, a more open concept. Uh, because this year, the fact that you don't have doors here was, would have been very unusual during the Victorian period. For example, in this entrance going into what I would have been a parlor. Yeah, there would have typically have been doors and everything would have been closed off uh, and, and in order to maintain the heat. But now this is almost more welcoming. What mm -hmm. happened is That's by the I'm time saying. the fireplaces came into, into being, after the furnaces became more more accessible to the normal person not that i'm saying that this is a regular house but it became more uh, it became more of a welcoming thing rather than something that was specific to each room so in other words the, the you didn't need to have one in the den you didn't need to have one in the in there so but this year gave the most impact because it became symbolic of hearth and home and so that's why the fireplace in this house would be in the center of uh, in in the entrance you rather confirmed my suspicion yeah as we walked through the house together we kept running into all these markers of wealth and class I would never have noticed. Like, the type of wood flooring changed when we walked upstairs to the second floor. So all of the doors, everything really is fur. I see this in the, in the millwork here. I see this all in the doors and everything. So it's all fur. So that tells us that in terms of um, socioeconomics, uh, he would have been, you know, if you're going to put um, McGrath with his humongous mansion as a 10, this house would have been probably about a seven mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's fairly typical for second floors to have fur even if you have oak downstairs um, a lot of times you would have fur a secondary wood a less less nice wood on on areas of the house where nobody had any business of being so you got to remember it's still a lot for show so you get all your best stuff on the main floor where where guests go but then after that it's just the family so really didn't matter quite so much so that's what i find most interesting about this house is it's kind of got a shadow house inside it there's a whole other tiny narrow staircase hidden behind a door here that leads to a little bedroom into a loft upstairs where the help would have lived and a kitchen downstairs you could literally live in totally separate worlds never seeing each other except through this narrow shelf thing called a pass-through between the kitchen and the dining room. The staff that worked in the house would open the doors on their side, put the food in, and the shepherds would open the doors on their side and take the food out. It's wild. And you would have been able to open up and take your dishes and yeah, put it on the dining room table. It's a pass-through, pass yes. Uh, so that, was the, that would have been a pantry. Now we use it as a fridge room. And then this would have been the dining room, which uh, you can see has... The, a little bit lower, a little more fat. This is the well, only room. These are plate rails. That's yes. why. Okay. And are they single or double? They're looking at this kind of four or five inch wide shelf that runs along the walls above your head, rails. all along the whole perimeter of the room. So, um, which, you know, so literally for two plates. So they would have put a larger plate in the back and the smaller plate in the front, and they would have made it, it would have, you know, just to show off your china. Because again, remember I was telling you this would have been also, interestingly enough, um, a lot of times people don't realize that there's gender to rooms. Mm -hmm. Entrances have, were gender, uh, male gender, uh, parlors were female, and uh, dining rooms, which do you think it was? Male. Why do you say male? Well, because the kitchens and the female and the dining, the, the, the rules, the pomp and circumstance often came from the 
patriarchal side. That's yeah, you're you actually, yeah, and because actually the, the ability for a man to be able to show how he right. could um, support his family meant also his, you know, how much money he made and all that, and they could show that off in the dining room. They could show it off in the quality of the dishes and, and the quality of the furniture. That's why the, the rooms were often really, um, um, the, the, the dining room suites were really heavily ornamented. Looking at this room, I would not have guessed that the reason why just above head height there are these like little boards running around the whole thing is so that the men could show off plates and yeah, other was, signs of wealth? Hard. It was still, even though it, with the women would have chosen it, it still would have showed off their wealth. Okay, so the nicer the china, the better, the more stuff on the sideboard, the more crystal with liquor and nice wines, the, all that was, was part of the... together, but he provided the he income good, for her exactly. to purchase it. It was a good, it was, he was a good provider. And also, it also was indicated by the food and, and the fact that they had fruit in the wintertime or things like that. So this was actually a male, male domain. Joanne pointed out a lot of details that Chrissy and I were surprised by. I learned that the little hexagonal tiles in the bathroom were original. Apparently some of the styles in the house were a little out of date for the shepherd's time, but I guess they were rich enough they could get away with it. Oh, and Christy asked about that clothesline. To the house. So this is the end of the house here. So my summarization was that maybe they had had a laundry line out here. Um, it's very possible because that would make sense where it did, had no business being up there. They would have just done, yeah, that makes sense. And, so that's why and also think. because it's higher than the main floor. Yes. Um, so again, there's no there's need, to, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I kind of love that Christy was so determined to figure out where the shepherds used to hang their clothes out to dry. As we were wrapping up, Christy was telling us about the artist renting out space in the dining room to paint. She seemed to be apologizing a bit for the house not looking exactly the way the shepherds would have kept it. But Joanne really complimented her and everyone else who lived there for taking such good care of the place. I think it's a certain personality that should live in an old house. And it has to be somebody that um, is not afraid of absolutely everything being perfect. Right. Because you will drive yourself crazy oh, if I, you I, are always looking for perfection. As you can see, I, I, I don't mind a little creative commerce and clutter. I, I like it clean, I like it tidy, but uh, a little clutter and a little creative commerce goes a long way in, in just productivity of today. Because yeah. sure. we still need to live for today. Absolutely. Even Absolutely. if we enjoy the past yeah. right? and, and, and want to preserve the past. Well, right? and the thing is, though, is that a lot of what you're doing is something that can be easily changed, picked up, whatever. Mm -hmm. the, the fact is, is that you're maintaining the envelope of the house. Yes. And that's the most important things in terms of the history for the future. Just for context, we're in the dining room and it is full of a giant easel, <laughs> several gigantic canvases, a couple of folding tables with paint supplies. <laughs> A few half-finished art projects, another few half-finished art projects, and yes. So we talked to the Provincial Historic Resources people. Um, Ron Kelland told us some of what they had on file about the house. Um, we talked to Joanne Yakula, who... Um, you know, knows a lot about historic interiors of houses. Um, what have you learned? What questions have been answered for you so far, Christy? Well, I've learned that Mr. Shepard was far more dynamic of a community player and an activist than I had known. 
and I have learned that he had many businesses, uh, some which I had confirmed and not confirmed, which is fine, but he also had other businesses that I had known. I learned that he had built this house after he was the mayor, which was something I didn't quite know, but uh, we found out he was mayor early 1900s and the house was built later. Uh, what else did I learn? I learned that we have a lot of resources at our fingertips to go and look into. That was a big thing I learned. <laughs> and you did, like, a lot of your suspicions about this house um, seem to have, have been true. Um, I think so. I think so, yeah. There wasn't a lot of huge surprises, but he was just even more of a community activist than I understood. There was one other thing you had a theory about that was true. Oh, right. Your theory about the fireplace. Yes, the theory about the fireplace. That was really interesting because I had oh, I, I thought it was a strange place for it practically. Growing up in a, a, a home that does have wood heat, we had our hearth in the living room and we had a kid. So it was just, it, it was some place where the family could enjoy and then you could warm up and you could have some social. Whereas in this house, it's right at the front entrance and it was surprising. But Joanne informed us that this is something that because they had reached a level of uh, wealth, if you will, that they could, and they no longer needed to have a fireplace in each room, then they could show when people were, were receiving people their wealth. And that's what I suspected. But, but it's the only thing that made sense to me if I was somebody in his position, if I imagined that as a community activist that I think I am, then I would, the only thing I could see practical use for a fireplace was to welcome my guests in the receiving area waiting for the den so they would have toasty warm toes but the unpractical mind of me was confused why the heat was going out the front door <laughs> because that's what it does when you open it up so I'm glad that my suspicions were uh, uh, <laughs> correct. That, that it's partly to like welcome people show off like yeah. hey you're in a nice home that's right exactly yeah and I have a picture I have a picture of this guy I didn't have a picture before it's always nice to have a picture to kind of you know put together with the, this character who built this and what a what a prominent guy. I mean, he looks pretty prominent and he's got the cleft chin, you know. <laughs> cool. You didn't know about you didn't know about the mustache before today. No, I did not. I did not know about the mustache, not at all. Uh-uh. Is there anything that you'd recommend to other people who want to find out more about their own houses in Edmonton? Well, Joanne's book seems amazing. I'm sure that the provincial folks are, are accessible and he had a wealth of information and they have files upon files in the basement. <laughs> Uh, I, so that that's in the end, and well, you could you could get in touch with your historian laureate. <laughs> that too, that too. We started out with a question: What is the story of the Shepherd House? We learned some fascinating stuff about wealth and power and prohibition along the way. But here's what I really think: the story of this house it starts with one of the last mayors of Strathcona building it as his businesses were booming. It was designed to show off their wealth to guests. But the true wealth of the home came from everybody who lived there after he and his family died and then moved away. A century of people taking care of this place, getting provincial historic designation for it, and now filling it with art and meditation and tunies in the floor. Because what's the point of keeping artifacts of our history around if we don't fill them with life? Christy and her crew are doing that, and they're making sure that the story of the Shepherd House goes on. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. I love hearing what you guys think of the show, and I want your questions about Edmonton history. 
drop me a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can listen to the first two episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. And can you do me a favor? Can you go into iTunes and leave a review for the show? I really appreciate everyone who's done it so far. Okay, thank you, time. Thank you to Christy Bolter, Ron Kelland, and Joanne Yakula for speaking with me. Joanne's book is called Historical Interiors of Alberta, A Guide to Restoring and Decorating Your Heritage Home. And you can find out more about her historic home restoration service at fromtimespast.com. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. Everyone who's been encouraging me along the way, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the really lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and until next time, keep your questions coming.